And as they are leaving, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6 this morning. The title of the sermon is Jesus, the Lord of your time and treasure. The reason why it's entitled that is whether we know this or live like this is true or not, every minute of time, every dollar in your bank account has been given to you by God. We, um, we can't buy the lie that we somehow pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, um, even though we may have worked hard and studied and, and networked and done a good job to get that career with money at the end of the day. If Jesus is Lord, that means that every gift of time, every gift of money is from him. If you have it, it's because he gave it to you. And, and this text this morning will be addressing this idea in a very, very harsh way. I'll be honest, it feels a little bit less like a New Testament letter and a lot more like a minor prophet. Um, if you've read ahead or you've seen these six verses in James 5, it really takes a lot more harsher, more direct, edgier tone than the rest of the letter. The, the title of the series, if you've been with us, you know that we've been looking at the idea of authentic living, and the whole book has been aimed at help giving us principles rooted in the gospel, but principles of how we are meant to live in a way that is authentic, but ultimately a joy-filled life for the glory of Jesus. But especially as we look at more intense commands that are aimed at your life that might require some direct, immediate change today, you have to remember to get the gospel order right. When we see practical commands, it is so easy for us to think that they are meant to show us a way to obey our way into favor with Jesus. But these commands are primarily meant to expose us and guide us as we seek to live in a way that pleases the Lord in response to our salvation, not to earn it. They expose our sinful behaviors that show us what idols are in our hearts so that we might deeply repent and live the abundant life that Jesus has purchased for us. They also guide us, not just expose, but they guide to show us the moral requirement of the abundant life. So, literally obeying the commands of Jesus in response to the mercy of Jesus and empowered by the grace of Jesus will lead you into deeper joy with him. So, let's look at the text. If, with that kind of floating over it, here's James 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. And your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury, and in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Slight change of tone here. 
right? Um, Before, though, we start to unpack exactly what this text means, we have to ask a very crucial question. Um, And scholars have gone back and forth on this, so I'll show you both sides, and then you can either pick one or argue with me later. Um, The the idea is, is who are these six verses written to? Um, In my studying, I've seen that some people actually make the case that this section of the book is actually written to non-Christians. And that's not entirely crazy to think. I mean, there's clearly some end times, judgment, wrath, eating your flesh like fire um, flavor to it. And we know that no person who truly belongs to Jesus will endure that type of judgment at at the end of the age. If you're in Christ... Your judgment is for rewards, not for condemnation or separation from God. However, I think that the most convincing opinions or thoughts here make it clear that this whole letter, and that would include these six verses, are actually written to an entire gathered body. So remember, a gathered body of people who claim Christ, or at least claim they want to be a part of the church, is made up of the true church, people who actually know and follow Jesus, and people who actually don't know him. So either way you land on this, it's important to know this, that the letter is meant to expose us where it brings rebuke and ultimately be read in the context of grace. So after we consider the claims of this, the appropriate response is to repent and cling to Jesus, whether for the first time or the thousandth time. But also, don't just kind of think, oh, I'm not really sure where it's, you know, who it's supposed to be to, so how does this really apply? Know this. This letter, these six verses are for you. Most of us in this room claim Christ. And most of us in this room are statistically rich. And all of us live in a culture that breathes the love of money and bends us toward using all of our time and all of our treasure on ourselves instead of the kingdom of God. So obviously, this morning is about to get real, right? This is, this is not going to be an easy thing because if you haven't got the trajectory of this, we are going to be addressing some of the most sensitive topics. The sermon and its applications are actually aimed at your lifestyle, your bank account, and the ultimate purpose of your life. And because of the obviously brutal nature of this passage, there are going to be times this morning where it comes across like, I'm trying to tell you how you're supposed to live. And I'll be honest, that terrifies me. But I know this, the easy thing to do would be to kind of ignore some of the fat in your heart in the day of slaughter stuff, And just talk about how Jesus is better than money and move on. But I know that even though I know so many of you in here and we love Jesus, we are not immune to the love of money and the devastating effects it can have. For established adults in the room, it's easy to work hard to just keep things safe and comfortable and convenient without ever taking risks with your time and money. College students in the room, how easy it is to get obsessed with that future salary or whatever you're going to make to be able to do whatever you want to do. Um, new parents, which is where I fall into. If you didn't notice, my son's first Sunday is this morning, so I'm really excited about that. Courtney and Duke are back. Um, 
but it's already so easy for me to want perfect financial security and ease for my family over him learning dependence on God and learning to trust him. Now, is it wrong to want the the former thing? Of course not. But is it wrong to want that over him learning dependence and trust on God? Better believe it. So even non-Christians in the room, you need to hear this because, you need to listen to this, your love of money is dragging you to hell. God has to do a work in your heart to overcome your enslavement to self-indulgence. So from the wicked, wealthy people who are faking their walk with Christ to the true believer that still struggles, all of us need to receive these six verses and beg for God to do something. Give us strength to faithfully obey Him, even in the most sensitive parts of our lives. All of us, in some way, can fall prey to this alluring sin. Money isn't evil. Wealth is not evil, but it is a gift from the Lord that is especially dangerous because of the sins in our culture, but mostly the sins in us. We naturally love ourselves. And, not to mention, Jesus literally says that you cannot serve him and serve money. So, in the name of full disclosure and me being honest with you, I don't want you to think I come up here and put a never-loving-money-or-comfort-or-convenience Superman cape when I come up. Um, I want to make sure that I remove the, at least five, giant money-loving planks out of my own eyes. So number one, I don't always have urgency in the way that I deal with my own sin. I'd rather make a plan, a resolution, or a promise to never do it again than I would just to repent and obey. Number two, I must not always see the seriousness of my own sin because I don't know that I've ever wept and howled at the prospect of my own sin. Wept some. Wept and howled? I don't know. Three, I definitely fall prey to conveniently giving. It's way easier for me to store treasure in heaven and generosity while my savings account is at an appropriate number or, you know, after I get some extra money where it just I can give conveniently that looks like it's generous, but it doesn't hurt at all. Number four, most of my anxiety comes from thinking about what might happen if I don't have enough money to keep the current lifestyle I have. I'll be honest, I don't really care much about getting super rich. Um, I don't really know what I would buy. I think I would just buy books and disc golf discs if I had a bunch of money. But I will say this, I'm addicted to the idea of everything just being fine. I don't really care about big stuff and nice stuff. I just wanted to, to never really worry about finances. Number five, I certainly live in self-indulgence most of the time in the way that I eat, in the way that I spend my money, spend my time, invest in relationships. I usually just do things that want to help me out. So, that being said, let's examine these truths in these verses, beg that they'll expose our hearts, and we can leave here changed by grace. So, verse one. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for the miseries that are coming upon you. So I want you to notice two things here. Notice the urgency in this verse, and notice who it is addressing. So right off the bat, come now. 
how easy it is for us to realize something is wrong in our lives and decide that we have to get ready or more prepared before we take the next step of faith with God. Listen, particularly in the area of giving over all of our time and treasure to Jesus, we can become experts at not being generous with those things in the name of financial wisdom, in the name of self-care, in the name of me time, etc., etc., it is so easy for us to say, yeah, you know what, I don't, I know that I don't give enough. You know, I know that I'm not investing my time selflessly. I'll just make a plan, or when I get this raise, or I get this money, then I will. The time to reckon with these things is now. It's today. By the power of God, you really can leave here a changed person. You really can leave Leave here free from the love of money and the love of self and a mindset that revolves constantly around your own comfort and convenience. You really can. And also notice that the rich are being addressed here. You've probably heard it said that if you make more than $2 a day, that you are considered rich in the world's standards. So I don't want us to ever let our culture trick us out of being thankful and content with what we have, but I know that my heart is so wicked in this. There are times that I can't even fathom giving up Wi-Fi for the sake of having extra money to give and live. Like, that's not a funny thing. Like, like think about right now, if there are things in your budget that you really don't need but you just like, if there was a huge need that needed that exact amount of money, would you be quick to give it up? I don't know, but I always would. And we also just have to look in the mirror this morning, because... American Christians are some of the richest people to ever walk the face of the earth. And I don't want to bore you with statistics, but you should know that the more our incomes, not in this room, I'm saying generally, the more our incomes have gone up, the lower our giving has become. Not to mention our reputation for being horrible tippers. Listen, these things are not beside the point. What you do with your treasure reveals your heart. And once again, wealth is not a sinful thing, but the wealth in our culture has certainly exposed idols in us that are keeping us from the good life while promising to give us the good life. And we can hate on prosperity preachers all we want, but how many of us functionally live as though our greatest security and peace is when we are happy Wealthy, healthy, and financially stable with a little Jesus thrown in. When we claim Christ as our Lord and our treasure, but live as though money and comfort matter most, we are living a functional prosperity gospel. So, with those facts, we got to ask... How should people who fall into those temptations and those sins, how should we respond to those things? Apparently, we should be weeping and howling. And you don't weep and howl over something that isn't bad. If you, sh- if you see these tendencies in your life, or maybe you are full-blown enslaved to these things, you should be repenting, and it should not be pretty. Sin isn't funny. It's so easy for us to slide some of these things that are harder to deal with is just they just are, man, that they don't matter. It's so easy for us to trade some sins for others that are just easier to hide. 
I mean, have you ever had a person confess the sin of loving money in an accountability group? I hope so, but I think it should probably happen more in my own life. I don't want to live continually how I have been living. I don't want to live in self-indulgence. I don't want to live as if money and comfort are my gods because my money isn't mine. And if sin is this serious, maybe it is time that we start inviting financial accountability into our lives. That feels crazy, right? But if the love of money is so pervasive, should not the closest of us who are brothers and sisters not be wanting all the help we can get to not fall prey to this? So, why should we be weeping and howling? Because of the miseries that are coming on you. So, these are specific, overwhelming miseries that are coming upon anyone who isn't in Christ. There is judgment for these sins. As a Christian, the sin still remaining in you should be hated, and you should do whatever it takes to kill its hold on you in God's power. But most of our mindsets towards sin wouldn't even make sense with weeping and howling. Yet, this is exactly what the Word is calling us to when it comes to these pervasive sins in our culture and in our hearts. So, verses 2 and 3. After that truth, we get three facts about riches here. It says that your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And you've laid up treasure in the last day. So the first thing we see here is just that riches have rotted. Now, Greek scholars have made the point here that the word behind riches comes from a Greek word that refers to the abundance of the earth's resources. So you can also think food and goods here as well. But the point is, is that they will rot away and go away one day. Number two, that garments are moth-eaten. It is clear in our culture that our clothing is a status symbol for wealth. I mean, why else would anyone spend money on a brand name thing that's the exact same thing as something else, right? The point is that our money buys us stuff that lets other people know that we have money that we don't have anymore because we spend it on the clothes. Number three, gold and silver is corroded. The point, once again, is that the money that they worked so hard to earn and use on themselves will eventually go away. So, the overwhelming gospel logic here is that our goods... Our clothes and our money seem like they are everything, but they eventually waste away. So why spend our time and effort on things that will go away? The last little bit there in verse 3 is really important. It says that you have laid up treasure in the last days. So the final statement here comes right after the list of things showing us how insufficient and unsatisfying money and stuff can be when eternity is at stake. And the word shows us that these people also laid up treasure for themselves in the last days. And here's what's scary. I think in some circles in our culture, this sentence could be seen as a compliment. Like, you've laid up treasure for yourself in the last days. How often is someone celebrated for their unbelievable net worth? Our culture is obsessed with rich people. An indictment in verse 3 of James 5 could be seen as a compliment in some of the cultural air that we breathe. But I want you to see something else here with this, with this line. If you remember, Adam's talked a lot about how James gets a lot of his cues 
from the teachings of Jesus. So if you're familiar with Matthew 6, you probably saw that when James said, you have laid up treasure in the last days. So I want to take us to Matthew 6, 19 to see the, the force behind this command. It says this, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So notice that James calls out these wealthy people in that gathered church who love money over Jesus for doing the exact thing that Jesus commands them not to do. We should not be laying up treasures for ourselves on earth because our treasures on earth do not last. And then Jesus gives us a diagnostic for our hearts. You see that? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So what do you put your time, your money, your resources toward? That shows you where your heart belongs. Is it on self Or is it on the kingdom of God? So let's take a break and get really practical here. Because I don't want this to stay kind of theory and not give us some direct things that we need to deal with here. Um, Obeying the command to lay up treasure for yourself in heaven is easy on the surface, but the heart and mindset to get there is really difficult. Because here's what it must mean. It must mean realizing the dangerous and fleeting pleasure of money It must mean understanding that an unhealthy eye, taking from Matthew 6, or an eye that loves money and wants everything it sees, is what can destroy an entire person in darkness. It must mean a grace-empowered choice to love Jesus over money. But obedience is not just in the heart. Our behaviors and actions in loving our neighbors and loving Jesus reveal our heart. So here's things it means. If you are someone who loves Jesus over money, you will be someone who gives. You will. You'll give to your local church family. You will give to others in need. You will give your time to invest in others. It will mean not using all of your best energy and effort to make your life more convenient. It means a radical new way of living that overflows with the love of God and neighbor. That's giving of our time and treasure until it hurts. That shows the world that Jesus is better than our riches. Or any riches of the world. It will mean at least that. So, James takes a different turn here after verse 3. And he shows us what can happen when money and self is king of our hearts. Look at verse 4. Behold... The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So notice something here. Clearly, these 
Wicked, wealthy people who have loved money over Jesus have gained enough wealth to hire people to work for them, clearly. And then, in their greed, they kept back money that they owed their workers. So I want you to notice something in your own heart. I'm not sure how many of you have ever owned a business or been in charge of other employees, but I want you to see that God clearly cares how we handle the money that we owe other people. And the fact that the cries of those who have been abused by power reaches the ears of the Lord of hosts is critical in building a biblical worldview of the way we address our own wealth and resources. Um, Notice here that it says the Lord of hosts hears these cries of these people who have been abused by wealthy, powerful people. It doesn't say the Lord of glory. It doesn't say the Lord of grace, the Lord of mercy. It says the Lord of hosts, and I think that's intentional. If you know about the idea behind Lord of hosts, you know that when you see that, you should think Lord of angel armies. So when the Bible says Lord of hosts, that means, of course, it's still the Lord of glory and the Lord of grace, and it is our Savior, but it is emphasizing something that it's not just Jesus the Savior, it is Jesus the commander of the Lord of the the angel armies. So I want you to see something. Because it says that, it's a powerful illustration. It's the difference between saying, if you don't stop messing with my friend, I'm going to tell my dad, who's nice and doesn't like what you're doing, or saying, if you don't stop messing with them, I'm going to tell my dad, who happens to be the leader of the most powerful army on earth and heaven. That's the weight behind this. So you need to know, if you are someone in here who's been abused by power, particularly in the area of wealth and resources, you need to know that the Lord hears your cries. It's the Lord of hosts who hears your cries. And I want you to hear something. The point here is not to get political. I just want to say one thing. If you are someone who claims to belong In the family of the Lord of hosts, that means you should care about your neighbors who are in poverty. Especially those who may be in poverty partly because of the abuse of power. You should care. Know that the Lord hears their cries and be a part of fighting for justice with them. Starting with preaching the gospel, shaped by preaching the gospel, But these things matter. We're supposed to live out the gospel in a way, in the way that we work, in the way that we earn money, in the way that we save money, in the way that we invest money. And a biblical view of that looks a lot less like individualized corporate ladder climbing and a lot more like using your life for others. Is it wrong to get a promotion? Of course not but it's wrong to worship the promotion. The point of our work is not to get all we we can get to build our kingdom here. The Word gives us a better way to look at work. So I want to give you a one-verse biblical theology of work here. It's a cross-reference. It's really interesting. Ephesians 4.28 says this. Let the the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone 
in need. So, a one-verse biblical theology of how we should be looking at our jobs. Look at this. First of all, notice, we are to work. Work is a good thing. Whether that's work that you are doing to earn money, or is it work you are doing um, just in your own way for the glory of God? Not that has to be a traditional job here where God blesses all work, but the idea is that we should be working. Also notice that the work should be honest. So biblical theology of work, first, do it. Second, it should be honest and good work. Thirdly, look at this. We are to work so that we may share with those in need. I'm not making this up. Look, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So we're talking about in the Ephesian church, a person who lived their life stealing from people, and when they come to Christ and repent, what it looks like to not be someone who steals is someone who works, who does honest work, and uses whatever resources that God gives them through their work to share with others. Being a part of the kingdom of God means that every job you have, every dime you make, is meant to be for something more than your own gain. Jesus demands this from us, and it's for our good. So we get more sin calling out from James here. Look at verse 5 and 6. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So, as we examine these indictments against the man whose heart is enslaved to money and self, it's appropriate to let these verses be a mirror. Do you remember in James 1, um, a couple weeks back, shows us how the word should be used. In James 1, 23 and 24, says that, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he is like. So you need to be warned as we consider these last kind of stabs at our love of money. You need to know this about yourself, that you will violently defend your own idols. You will. As we consider harsh sayings of the Bible, our natural sinful default is to justify ourselves. I think that's not me that's talking about whoever. But we're all in desperate need of grace here. And when we consider these claims, we must not just hear it, justify ourselves, and leave unchanged. We haven't been saved to live for ourselves. So, as we consider each of these line by line, I'm begging you, even pray in your own heart right now. Beg Jesus to expose you in these areas. First one. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. So, how have you been living your life on earth? Have you considered the fact that the earth is not your home? Is your lifestyle something that is beyond your means? Is your entire life meant to just get what you want in the way that you spend money, in the way that you spend your free time? Is it always for you and your kingdom? It's worth asking. I'm not going to be able to name that for everyone in here, obviously. I can only name me. You've got to reckon with this. Luxury, self-indulgence. Is that the aim of our lives? And then we get some terrifying imagery of what this looks like. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So, 
as we consume more and more for our own gain with no heart bent toward giving or loving our neighbor, it's making us fat for slaughter. Try to, try to picture this, a, a pig happily eating food. And he just eats and eats and eats, and he's so excited because the entire food trough is his for weeks. And then the pig gets tired of eating, and all of his choices, a selfish pig, are meant for him. So when he gets tired of consuming, he just rolls around in mud for comfort until he gets enough energy to start consuming again. But the whole time, the owner of the selfish pig is just fattening him to slaughter him. He thinks he's doing things that are good for him, but in fact is fattening him for slaughter. You need to understand something. This is the reality for those outside of Christ. As you consume and live for yourself, you are just fattening yourself for the slaughter of God's judgment. I know our culture preaches the gospel of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and that's how you earn acceptance, but it is not true. It's a lie. It's helping you fatten yourself for the day of slaughter. And for those of us in Christ, if we're jumping on the selfish pig train, we're just setting ourselves up to live a life that is not pleasing to Christ. And this is serious. We don't want to walk blindly into spiritual death with our belly full, new clothes on, and a smile on our face. It's not good. Please, man, I'm begging you, do not ignore these warnings. James isn't even the worst. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Please see this. Living for yourself is dangerous. Even desiring to be rich is a dangerous thing. Notice what it says. That there have been people who have wandered from the faith because they wanted riches over Jesus. That means we are not immune to this. For those of us who have just been claiming Christ while worshiping money and comfort and self, you need to know that there's a chance left unrepented, left unchecked, that you can wander away and pierce yourself with many pangs. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds horrible. It's not a harmless thing. In verse 6, it goes on. It says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So, one more extremely harsh indictment. Apparently, it's possible for the wicked wealthy people to let their love for money and power and success and self and comfort and convenience to drive them to murder innocent people. Remember that we are totally capable of murdering in our hearts. So don't just think, I haven't killed anyone, therefore I'm off the hook with this verse. It's totally in our sinful DNA. If you remember, Judas Iscariot followed Jesus around for three years and then ultimately betrayed Jesus for what? Money. It 
can happen. All of us are sinful. We must be free from the love of self and money if we are to be as effective as we can be for the kingdom in this world. And more importantly, to love and serve Jesus, you can't be loving and serving money. So, what do we do? First of all, this needs a lot of prayer. There's no way that from a pulpit you can perfectly articulate all of the different ways that all of you need to live here living a different way with your bank accounts. No way. It needs a lot of prayer. Invite accountability into your life. But here's some things I know that need to happen. We need to repent of our love of money. We need to be givers of our money. We need to rethink our budgets and our schedules and consider how much of it we can sacrifice for the benefit of others in need. Let's do whatever it takes as a church family to leave here determined to lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth. Figure out what you need to live and, of course, provide for the future of your family and figure out how to use just as important in our budget figuring out how we can use our money to bless others. And, and by the way, this isn't some cool minimalist way to live, okay? I'm not advocating for some trendy minimalism, let's not love stuff lifestyle. I'm saying this is the freedom that Jesus has called us to, is we can actually live free of the enslavement to more things, the nicer stuff, and more money. But here's the thing, and a danger really. You can give all of your money away and still have a heart far from God. You can give all of your time for others and volunteer for as many 501c3 nonprofits as you want and still not have a heart that pleases the Lord. The point isn't that we leave here feeling bad about our time and money and decide to give more of it away with the heart that is just mad about what you're doing. The point is to love Jesus and respond to his grace in a faith-fueled obedience in all areas of our lives, but in particular this morning, our time and our treasure, using more and more of our lives for the sake of others. Um, it's probably a story you're familiar with, but there's a story in the Gospels in Matthew 19 where a man enslaved to his stuff encounters Jesus and wants to talk to him about eternal life. And he asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And just note, all of us naturally want to earn what only comes by grace. And this is exactly what this man was doing. Jesus responds in a weird way, uses the word to expose his heart. And then in response to that, the young man actually says that he's kept all of the commands since he was young. By the way, impossible and bold and arrogant. But it's beside the point. Jesus says, okay, you want to... Follow me, you've got to obey this. And he says, I've nailed all of those. I mean, it's just ludicrous to think you're talking to the Lord of hosts here and you're going to tell him you've perfectly obeyed since you were a baby. Um, but, but then Jesus looks at him, not intimidated by this man's righteousness, okay? Looks at him and says, you lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. point isn't, 
point of that story is not that all of us have to leave here selling everything to be a Christian. But Jesus was getting at his heart. He's saying, you want to follow me? It's not about perfect obedience because you can't do that. It's about letting go of whatever idol has gripped your heart and worshiping me instead. He says, you can't hold on to your stuff, young man, and still follow me. It's impossible. Here's the devastating part, though. As far as we know, this young man never follows Jesus. It actually says that he left sad because he had many possessions. Jesus wasn't worth it. He was looking at the king of the universe in the face, come in flesh to rescue him from his sin. And he decided that, man, I should really... And he's considering this in his mind, and he thinks, I'm not going to do this because i got a lot of stuff. So now it's our turn to kind of have this moment with the gospel here. Um, hear these words from 2 Corinthians 8 9. I love this. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. These are the riches that we can have in Christ. If you will taste it by faith, all of the other riches of this world will not hold you back from enjoying Jesus and walking with him forever. Jesus became poor Poor to the point of death on a cross. He left his riches and entered our spiritual poverty. He rose again so that we might be rich in Him. And if you know Him, the appropriate response, if you're still struggling with love of money and stuff and comfort and convenience, the appropriate response is to stare at these riches in Christ until your money doesn't matter. You stare at Him until you want all of your time to belong to Him. And if you walked in here this morning and you are far from Jesus, I'm begging you to consider your poverty. You can have a million dollars in your bank account and be miserable in your sin. And Jesus can set you free, even though we all fattened ourselves for the day of slaughter. The gospel is that Jesus stepped in and got slaughtered in our place. And when he rose again, he offers riches that can drown out all of the, the pool toward the riches of this world. So, since it's the first Sunday of the month, um, we continue our worship service by coming to the Lord's table. Um, so as whoever is responsible for that this morning, as you're coming up, I want to talk a little bit about what we're doing. Um, the first thing that you'll see um, at the Lord's table, or maybe you've heard it called communion or something like that, is there's bread. And that bread represents the broken body of Jesus for us. And then you're going to see some, a cup with some juice in it, and that represents the blood shed for us. So if you're new to this or haven't really seen it, one thing that we ask is if you haven't followed Jesus, you are not a Christian, we ask you to stay far away uh, from the bread and cup. You do not want to take it this morning. Um, but as others are, I would just pray that you would consider your life. What's keeping you from 
taking that step with Jesus? Could it be riches? Could it be comfort, convenience? Because in our sin, we are more poor than we could ever know, but in his riches, we are more loved than we could ever imagine. So as we come to the bread and cup this morning, as you're taking of it and eating the bread and praying and contemplating, I pray that the riches of Christ would just be so evident in your heart that we would leave here as people who are not enslaved to those things. Let's pray. Father, do whatever it takes in our lives to make us not love money more than you. Give us hearts that are obsessed with the riches that you've provided for us in Jesus. Lord, convict us specifically. Lord, show us where we can give more of our time, more of our treasure for your kingdom. I pray that the love of money and self would have no stronghold here in our church family. And Lord, for people who are still far from you and haven't surrendered, I pray you'd break them this morning. That they would see that you are worth it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.